Hi, I'm Paul Stringfellow, and welcome to Tech Interviews. This week, we're looking to secure all of the things in the first of our short series focusing on security. So settle back and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to this week's Tech Interviews. Uh, this is the first in a series looking at the, the ever-evolving data security challenge. Um, and so in this first episode, I wanted to take a look at a wider strategic view um, so to do that, I've been joined by uh, Valerie Batchelor from IBM. Hi, Valerie. Good morning. Oh, hello, Paul. Morning. How are you? Well? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good indeed. Yeah. So, so I know we've got quite a wide topic to talk about today, and uh, and this comes out of um, out of some uh, interesting work of uh, I've been doing with IBM recently and their their security team. Um, but I wanted to kind of touch with, on with you the idea of this kind of wider strategy. Um, but but before we dive into that, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the role you've got at IBM uh, and what you do, uh, and then we can dive into that topic. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. So my name is Val Bachelor, or Valerie Bachelor, and. Um, I've worked at IBM for a number of years doing a number of different uh, roles, everything from programmer to project management. My current role is that uh, I look after the technical health of our ecosystem of security partners in the UK and Ireland. So it's my job to make sure that these guys have the skills and resources they need to support our products. Um, I've been in security on and off since 1999, and um, in that time I've seen a lot of changes. So if it's okay with you, what I'll do is I'll start with the uh, the challenges that I see CISOs facing these days. Yeah, I think I, mean, I think that's a good place to start. You know, I, I think it's useful for for the listeners to to put a little bit of context around what we see as the current security challenge, and you know, and and, that, and it's interesting you say you know this, this is something you've worked, you know you've worked in this kind of arena for quite a long time. It'd be interesting to get your take on how that's changing. So yeah, please do. You know, let's set a little bit of context. Okay, so. When I talk to CISOs, uh, some people call them CISOs, I, I, I don't think there's a correct pronunciation. Um, what I find is that, first of all, they've got enormous challenges ahead of them. I, I don't envy any of them the jobs they've got, because they have the traditional challenges of a, a segmented company, where usually there are pillars of expertise, and you've always had the challenge of trying to coordinate all of that, trying to get people from different areas to work together. And most techie people are a bit like cats. They don't like to be herded. Um, what we've got going into the last few years is a rate of change in technology information, in, in technology innovation, that is just, it's, it's logarithmic. It just keeps going up and up and up faster and faster. All this innovation is great for modern life. We, we all love our social media and our Snapchat and everything else. Um, but it's a complete nightmare if you're a CISO. And it's not just the phones and tablets, which, which are almost old hat now. Isn't that incredible that in just 10 years these are old hat? We're starting to have problems with the digital assistants, uh, you know, the um, Alexa and, and things like that. The Internet of Things has been, everybody's been talking about it for a few years, but it's, it's going rapidly <laughs> and it's moving so fast people can't keep up with it. Then people are looking at cloud-based services, so somebody Somebody sitting inside your company decides they need a spreadsheet application because it will help them do their job better. They don't mean anything malicious by it, but they can take the credit card, they can go off, they can buy that, they can access it, and often you don't even know they're doing it. So companies are having to increase the rate of technology adoption just to keep up. If, if they don't adapt, they die. And everybody, all, us, all of us as consumers, when we play the role of consumers, we want all the advantages 
but we don't want the pain. Nobody wants the pain. So all of this comes together and um, a breach breaks out. And when that happens, the press are absolutely all over it, trying to sell newspapers with it. Now, you know, Equifax have just paid a huge price for that. They've just lost their senior security people. I think they also just lost their CEO on top of having lost their data. So not only have they lost their data, but they've probably lost the people who were best placed to decide what to do about that. Because, you know, they've got a history with the company, they understood all about it. So the challenges are huge. It never stops moving. And at the same time, the world is very unforgiving about it. doesn't understand that, you know, I, I honestly think most people don't understand that when it comes to security breaches, it's not a question of if, but when. And all this is happening because of data. Now, we've always had data, you know, it's been there as long as IT's been around. But data has taken on an increasing focus in the last few years. It's, I've heard it described as the new oil. A friend of mine says maybe it's the new oxygen because it's, it's everywhere. We all need it, and too much of it's toxic. Um, there are multiple ways that people access it, and I, I like to take things down to very simple examples. If you just think of how we're all using our bank accounts now, we can go into a branch. I'm going to do that later on today to get some holiday money. We use online banking. I do that as well. You do it on your laptop. You have an app. Now you can pay a contact, and you can pay straight out of our accounts to pay for goods and services using our phones. All sorts of different apps that will let you take money from your bank account and give it to someone else. So there's a, there's a massive proliferation of the ways people are just accessing their bank accounts, and that's just one everyday example. And of course, what we want is we want easier access. We want these frictionless accesses where your phone looks at your face and knows it's you, uh, rather than having to use very, very secure ways of accessing things because they're always a pain in the posterior. So there's all this data that's really valuable. It's worth money to people. All of us want to be accessing that data in a multitude of ways, and it keeps on moving. And the thing I see that data, it, it, it's not, we keep on saying the word data, and it kind of dehumanizes it. Actually, that data is our data, Paul. It's yours and mine. It's data that belongs to you or to your auntie or to your cousin or to your brother. Um, and when, it, when it's gone, you know, that's real pain for real people. And it's never gone, of course. It's not like having your television stolen. You know your television's gone because there's a hole in the air where your television used to be. But the, uh, the data is still there. So that's one of the other things that makes it so hard for people to realize that they've had a breach. So when we understand that our data is gone, what happens is that we as consumers then go and complain to our governments. And our governments quite reasonably try and put legislation in place to protect us. That legislation has to be interpreted, it has to be understood, it has to be assimilated into the legal framework, it has to be complied with. The latest thing we're all looking at is this GDPR regulation to do with data in Europe. There's going to be more than that, it's never going to stop. But the one thing you can say about the legislation is it's always behind the curve, because the threat landscape keeps on changing. The major breaches that we've all heard about over the last few years, like Target and Sony, etc., all those businesses were compliant with the known regulations at the time. So the regulations weren't enough, and compliance with those regulations wasn't enough to keep everything safe. So why is that the case? Well, a lot of it is because of the way that hacking itself has changed. Hackers are much more sophisticated now and have many more resources. Something I read the other day, um, if you haven't heard of the National Cybercrime Security Centre in the UK, 
uh, you need to know about it. So they are trying to triage major incidents in the UK. So apparently last year they had a thousand incidents reported to them in the UK alone. Now they classify them at different levels. The, the most severe level is one, which means that government intervention is needed. Uh, the WannaCry ransomware that broke out a few months ago was a level two incident, and apparently in the last year they've had 30 incidents at that level in the UK. I mean, I find that quite a frightening statistic. I don't know about you. Um, it's never going to go down because there's so much money to be made in it. The current estimates are that cybercrime around the world is a $400 billion business. Did you hear that right? $400 billion. Yes. And it's estimated that by the early 20s, it's going to be a $2 trillion business. That's really what's happening here. There is so much money to be made out of it. I mean, I've heard in other talks that um, the mafia in Russia and China and other countries now make more money out of cybercrime than out of drugs and prostitution put together. It's a, you know, I mean, I think, you know, and you've got a real, uh, you know, really thorough, uh, kind of a thorough explanation of, of what the current current problem looks like, and uh, there's a couple of things there that certainly you know stuck out to me. And actually, one of the things that you talked about, that, and I think it's often something of technical people that we we often miss, is that idea of security being a pain. You know, and, and it's this fine balance, isn't it, between building an appropriate security infrastructure, security solution that protects our data, protects our sensitive information. Um, and something that isn't going to be such a pain that users are just going to find ways to work around it. You know, I think you gave the spreadsheet example. You know, that that person there who's building that spreadsheet in their business, he's not building that spreadsheet because they want to do it to annoy somebody or steal data. They're building that spreadsheet because it's the easiest way for them to do their job because probably the system that they have is too complex or takes too long or is too difficult. You know, we've, we've all seen that. You know, we've all been in places where they've deployed a system and you think you've never asked a user what they actually want. So that user then goes away and does something else. And I think we get the same potentially with security. So, I mean, from your experience, say this, this threat landscape's huge, this threat landscape's ever-evolving. I mean, what are you seeing at the moment about the way that the organizations you've got experience with in your time at IBM or just, you know, things that you've seen in general? How are organizations currently tackling some of these issues? And, you know, and you did touch on things like, you know, how, um, how busy, you know, if you're a CISO or a CIO or something working within an organization, the idea of trying to herd all these cats together can be quite difficult. But, but how are businesses taking this challenge on and, and what is it that maybe where are they falling short right now? You know, where are some of the areas that you see that, um, that maybe this could be addressed differently or could be addressed better? Okay, that's, that's an excellent question. And yes, you're absolutely right to point up the tension between the user experience and the need for security. It's something I've been passionate about for some years. Um, so something that um, I think I think it's only now creeping into the consciousness of us in the security community. I mean, I've been banging on about it for the last 18 years, but uh, I've said in other words exactly what you said, that if you make things too hard for people, what you end up with is human intelligence turned against you. Um, there is still a kind of hardcore of people working in security who seem to think that if they just make things very secure, everybody should understand that and everybody should go along with it. So something that currently I find very, very frustrating, for example, is um, more and more websites that I'm using are turning towards using passwords with substituted letters in them, you know, where you put in a number or you put in a special character. 
and where it's actually required now. Now, a few years ago, a friend of mine in IBM uh, put me on to some research. And you, you can go and read it. You can find it on the web. It's proven mathematically um, that, first of all, those kinds of things, for some, somebody ends up having a short password when they do that because it's so hard for them to remember. And because the password's relatively short, it's really relatively easy to crack. And actually, what makes a lot more sense is to take a long password. It doesn't have to have special characters and numbers in it, but basically, the longer it is, the harder it's going to be to crack. But you know what? If you're using something familiar, like let's say you were using um, a line from a song, for example, it'd be really, really easy for you to remember, but it would be really hard to crack. So I see little things like that that I just find plain irritating because you know the research is out there. We don't have we don't have to do that. But I, I hesitate to say that people are doing things wrong. I think what's happening is that the world just keeps on changing. And one of the things I wanted to tell you about was uh, we we did uh, a study a few years ago around a bunch of businesses, asking them um, what they were doing about security. Um, now, what tends to happen to CISOs, right? There's, you'd be quite shocked at some of the things I'm going to tell you. I've read blogs by CISOs who say that they come in and they're told that they have no budget whatsoever. I, I want to repeat that, no budget whatsoever for security. So somehow they're supposed to secure everything without spending any money. And I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work. They, tend, they, they sometimes can be sacrificial lambs when things go wrong. Um, which I also don't think is very, very helpful. Um, but what tends to happen is that when these breaches break out, the next thing the board's all over the seas will go, you must do something about this. So not unreasonably, the CISO goes out and finds a solution that solves the specific problem that they just had. Everything's always working historically. And, um, and you know, they're bright people, so they, they, they try to make it more general purpose than that. But because the threat landscape keeps moving, the available products keep on moving. And we actually we, we we found ourselves talking to people who had literally you know a few dozen products installed as a result of trying to secure their enterprise. We spoke to one guy, and I I, I hate to mention it, he must have regretted um, ever telling us this because we've used it ever since. He had 85 products supplied by 45 vendors in his estate. Now think about what that means, Paul. So you've got a product, you're, you're a security analyst working in a company and you're trying to see what's going on, either because a breach has broken out or just because something's been flagged up as a bit suspicious. You're going to have at least 45 consoles you have to go and look at. There might be more, I'm assuming that each vendor supplies one console for all the products. You've got to take the information that comes in at one place and correlate that with the information you're seeing at another place and correlate it with the information you're seeing at another place. You've got to do all that in your head. That's never going to work. Um, and that's why, um, that's one of the reasons why IBM started thinking a few years ago in terms of this immune system strategy. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the immune system if that's okay. Yeah, because I think it's a, again. I mean, it's cool. I, I mean, the thing about passwords. I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, you mentioned the National Cybersecurity Centre here in the UK earlier on, and you know, and they've got some great research into the way that we work with people in an organisation. And they've they've got. And I know the title of the research isn't why passwords are rubbish, but 
you know, ultimately the gist of it is that the more complex you try and make a password, the human part of that will be, I'm going to make the simplest version of that password that I can get away with. So 10 characters with special, you know, special characters and numbers in it, the reason you end up with things like password with A's and asterisks in it, uh, because I can remember that as a human being, but actually as password security, it's absolutely rubbish, even though the complexity of the password seems great. And as you say, you know, backed very much by the idea of um, the idea of actually long phrases are a, a much better thing to. Um, so I'll put something in the show notes actually about that research from the National Cybersecurity Centre because I think, it, as you say, it makes a it makes a great read. You know, and this idea that strategically, actually, rather than always looking at our people as a whole in our security, we should be looking at our people as the best first line or the best defence that we've got. You know, let's let's educate people mm. people into doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, let, let, let's let's dive into this idea because I think you know this this was the thing that kind of intrigued me, and the reason I, I was so keen to speak to IBM for for this show was that I think this idea of that we can't, you know, when you touch on regulation before, and I think one of the things that um, I look at it, uh, with, with GDPR, one of the things I look at as as a real positive within it is this um, uh, this demand that it makes that we start to design privacy and security into everything we do. It doesn't become an afterthought. We don't have a breach, and then I go and buy product number 46 to sit on my network. This is something that we start to look at overall as a much wider strategic thinking, not just as IT and a CISO, but actually as as an organization. And I, and I think this is a really interesting area that, that IBM, and a couple, you know, we were talking offline before about a couple of other Big IT vendors who are uh, who are going down this route of this kind of overall strategic view, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm in really interested in what you guys are doing here. So so yeah, so in terms of why this kind of overall strategic view makes sense, you know, what what are you seeing? Okay, so everybody seems to relate well to it. The only people who don't are very very small companies where perhaps it sounds like a bit of overkill, but the idea is simple enough. If you look at the the, the biological immune system in humans or or any other mammal, for example. You don't have to be a biological expert to understand it. I'm certainly not. But what happens is that um, you've basically got sensors out in your body. And when you get an infection or a virus, your body generates chemical markers that go to the brain and the central nervous system. Now, your brain and your central nervous system are very, very sophisticated at interpreting this. It's, it's not by any means a crude and clumsy system. It's highly sophisticated and it's quite highly tweaked. So the um, concentration of a chemical marker, the timing it comes in versus another chemical marker, will all um, be clues to, to the brain as to how to orchestrate its defences. Its defences will be multi-layered as well. I mean, think about what happens when you get a cold or a flu. You get multiple things that kick in. You get a higher temperature, which of course is designed to kill whatever's in, in your body. You'll probably suffer uh, an increase in the amount of fluid being held in tissue, you might notice yourself feeling a bit swollen in places, and that's about providing transport for the lymphatic system to go around and, and clear out infection. You might gain appetite or you might lose appetite, and all of that, again, is about another layer of defence that the body sees. Um, when we started thinking in terms of an immune system for security, we started thinking in the same way. Could we take all these point products and bring them in and figure out, much the same way the brain does, given what's coming in, given when it's coming in, are there particular things we should do? Um, so I came up with a few examples, so just, just to sort of liven things up a bit. You see, the attacks aren't simple. 
the attacks. Remember, they're coming from highly sophisticated hackers. And just for a bit of amusement for the listeners, um, were you aware of the fact that you can go on the dark web? You don't have to write your own hacking tools anymore. You can go on the dark web with your credit card. Like any other cloud service, you can say, I want something to take over 400 PCs in the next week, and you can buy it. And what's more, you can buy it with levels of service that can include a 24-7 helpline. And I've even heard of them being sold with a money-back guarantee, 400 PCs infected in a week or your money back. Uh, so the levels of sophistication of the attacks are huge. They're automated. So I've, I've had um, I've, I've had CISOs say to me, but surely it's like protecting my house um, from a burglar. You know, if I make my house less attractive than the next house, they'll go next door. Except that we're living in this automated world is the point. It's, it's as if there were an infinite number of burglars out there with infinite resources and infinite time to do it. I wonder how many of us, if, if, if we thought that existed in the physical world, how many of us would ever feel safe about leaving our houses ever again? Uh, that's the reality of what's there in the virtual world. So let me throw a few examples at you, Paul, just for fun. Um, you're a SOC analyst and you notice that somebody's been trying to sign onto a server with a default password. They didn't succeed because everybody working with that server, as it happened, has been really good about their password hygiene. Do you, as a SOC analyst, when you see that, do you raise a major incident on it? What do you think? Yeah, well, for me, I'd I, I want to know that somebody was trying to access privileged accounts. So I'd, I'd at least want to be able to see that that has happened. I suppose whether whether I, I raise it as a major incident would probably depend on a bunch of other things as well. But yeah, I'd certainly want visibility of that happening. Okay, all right. A few days later, or maybe a few months later, you know, you've, you've been dealing with 15 incidents, 20, 30, 40 incidents a day, right? And um, you notice that somebody, somebody whose name you can see, they're accessing a server that they have access to, downloading data that they're entitled to download. They're just doing it a bit more often than they did do historically. Would you raise a major incident on that? Yes, yeah, and I, so that, that, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'll, I'll turn this round, um, maybe not because I don't wanna, maybe don't want to spoil where you're heading with this. So, yeah, again, I might be looking at that, and I would look at that as unusual activity. And again, I want to be aware of unusual activity. And then maybe, depending on how unusual, I might want to deal with it. Um, but yeah, again, I, I, it may depend how unusual before I raise it as an incident. But yeah, again, I'd, I'd want visibility of that. I'd want to know that this unusual behaviour had occurred that sits outside of the norm. Yep, yep, absolutely. So then you notice that a server in your, in your network is suddenly sending an awful lot of data to another server based on a country where you know you've got no employees and nobody's on holiday there. And when you drill into it, there's key company data in there. Would you raise a major incident for that? I'd probably be raising an incident by now, uh, particularly with the other things. Um, but uh, you know, I suppose I'm forgetting here, of course, we're talking about this happening over a period of weeks or months, as opposed to these are three instances happened back to back. Oh, yeah. Where oh, I'm yeah. If, it back, if it happened back to back, it's yeah, obvious. You, you, you're all over like... it, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think, that's, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That, yeah, you know, certainly with something like that, yes, I'd, I'd want to know that was going on, and I would be raising an instance saying, why are we sending key company data to yeah, everybody could clearly see that number three is a major incident, but what they probably wouldn't see is that one and two were precursors to that major yeah. incident. 
They were yeah. part of the attack, part of a creeping attack that um, was all being done in an automated way. So you didn't worry too much about number one about you know somebody trying to brute force one server because frankly it's happening every single day. Yeah. Um, now that's where something like the immune system comes into play because you see in all three cases. And by the way, these are these are sort of uh, anonymized versions of real things that happened in real attacks. Um, the individual security products highlighted all of them, brought it to the attention of SOC analysts. But as you, as you just spotted, because it happened over a long period of time, they didn't see the connection between it. They didn't see that, um, and, and, and you know, they wouldn't have, most people would not raise major incidents on the first two because they're just too common. Um, and of course, by the time three comes along, it's too late. So the point of the immune system analogy is that if we can bring all that information in and hold it and remember that something happened, which a human being is not going to be able to do uh, on their own, if we, can, if we could come up with technology that centralizes all of this, brings it in, arranges it in sequences, remembers that things happened in the past, and starts to draw the picture for the analyst, we suddenly make our analysts a lot more productive. And that's terribly important because security analysts at the moment are like rocking horse droppings. Um, people can't get them. They literally cannot get them. It doesn't matter how much money they're prepared to pay for them. The people with skills simply aren't out there. And it's not something, you know, this isn't, this isn't a rally to lots of people at school to rush off and become security analysts. It does take quite a long time. It takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of effort. Uh, but if you start now, I'm pretty sure we can guarantee you jobs for some years to come. Jack, let me just throw something in there. And I, and I think it, it kind of it, it, it looks at this, so, you know, the, the, this kind of overall strategic point that you make, I think, is, yeah. is, is where you start to see lots of this move. Because I think that challenge of, you know, and you, you gave the example before of you know, 45 different vendors all with their security such and certainly some of the feedback we hear all the time is the idea that how am I supposed to keep on top of this? You know, and actually you were talking there, of course, about you know becoming uh, you know a security specialist going into that field that it takes a lot of time and effort to get there, and I suppose that's that's part of the challenge as well, isn't it? Because the problem is so complex and the problem is so off, you know, the, the problem's happening so often that going back to the analogy of of burglars, what you almost need is an infinite amount of security analysts with an infinite amount of resources and an infinite amount of time looking at an infinite amount of problems. You know, it's infinite amount of monkeys hitting an infinite amount of typewriters creating wonderful works of Shakespearean quality. You know, it's, it's that. But, but you know, it, it's about the reality of how you do that. And, and, and of course, I think what you're saying is that the idea that you do that by just patching over individual problems all the time because I've had a data leak over here or I've been attacked by some malware over here or we've seen a data leak over here that because we're doing that, we think, oh, I'll just patch that with this and I'll stick a plaster over here. That can't be the approach to this kind of thing. You know, we've got to step back and look at, we've got all these tools, you know, we have these tools in place, and, and a number of tools is probably going to be the answer uh, for probably the long term, let alone the medium term. But how you aggregate that information together into something useful, that, that really becomes your strategic thinking. Um, you, you know, is, 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 that, is that kind of accurate? Yep, yep, that's that's absolutely on on the nail, Paul. And there's more to it than that because you know the point products are important. They're flagging up real indicators of compromise. 
it's just trying to bring all that information together in a way that is meaningful for the human being. You're not going to take human intelligence out of this. You're still going to have to have a human being at the middle. Um, so you're trying to so you're trying to bring the information from the point products together. This isn't about trying to say that you know we've got one tool we can put out there and you can replace all your products with it. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is we can put something in the middle, and it's usually a sim. It's usually some kind of intelligence and event manager. Um, where you can bring all the information, have it interpreted by the system, do a lot of filtering on it, look for the things that are likely to actually be important to people, figure out what are so-called false positives. Um, there's, there's two things that does. One is it makes the resource that you can get hold of, the, 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 secure, the trained security people that you can get hold of, a lot more productive. Um, it should also give them means to search into the products, you know, to actually analyse what's happened. But it also preserves that investment that you made in those point products in the first place. It lets you get more out of them. It lets them be more useful. I mean, we, we started, we being IBM, we, we started a few years ago with this, and one of the things we put in place was not only integrating all our products with our SIM product in such a way, very, very deliberately looking at a way that we could make the whole greater than the sum of the parts, but also integrating the individual security products with each other. And then we took it a step further, because one of the reasons the dark web is so successful, one of the reasons that the bad guys are so successful is because they're all collaborating. You know, there are chat rooms out there where they're sitting helping each other with developing malware, um, sharing things. I mean, sometimes for money, but they're collaborating and they're sharing things. And IBM actually took a very unusual step a couple of years ago when it stood back and said, we're not going to win unless we start collaborating with each other. It's not just about IBM collaborating internally. It, it then became about how can we collaborate with other vendors, other security vendors, to try and produce an integrated solutions that are going to be better for our clients. And, and they've taken that a long way, Paul. You know, you can go to your app exchange, and there's over 100 apps on there now. And I think 30 or 40 of them are about providing a deeper level of integration with someone else's product. Now, obviously, in a market economy, you know, we can't suddenly turn socialist and drop all the barriers and share everything. But I think this is this collaborative idea is a really good way to go. I've heard now that other companies are doing the same, and as far as I'm concerned, this is all goodness. This is all making it better for the folk who are actually trying to secure the businesses, um, yeah. and, I, and I'm glad to see it. Yeah, and I think that goes back to this kind of idea of. Uh, it ultimately, I mean, you touched on this right at the start, that the idea that the data that we're talking about, and, you know, you use the phrase dehumanizing, you always dehumanize it talking about data, but in reality, it's our information. It's, you know, and, and one of the reasons I think GDPR is, is actually quite a good thing is because what it does, it means that companies who hold information about me and you as individuals cannot be, uh, you know, cannot Take, take a real lack of care with that and feel free to spread it on the internet or do with it as they see fit because ultimately it's information that, that affects us. And I think this wider, you know, at, a, at an enterprise level, this kind of wider idea that, that it will make sense from for the common good for us to share what we know, to be able to share, like I said, not necessarily give away all of your solutions. You know, companies like IBM need to exist and, and, and have to do that by making money. Um, but, you know, the idea that actually IBM might have something great over here and maybe another company has something great over there and the ability to share that experience and knowledge to help us secure all of our enterprises because the better secured our enterprises are, then the more difficult it becomes for these kind of data breaches that, that spread widely and quickly and affect 
millions of people, you know, where actually if we can all be more secure and we can all share that information, you know, almost a herd immunity, you know, going back to kind of a biological phrase mm -hmm. before, but that idea of herd immunity almost. Well, look, I, I mean, to kind of sum these up, and I, and I know you've got holiday money to get and, you know, uh, and, and towels to buy and all kinds of things. Uh, we'll, we'll share that story another time about the towels. Um, but, you know, so, so for people listening to this, if there was, uh, maybe, maybe just in summary, if there's a couple of things that people uh, could do as a first step to maybe look at this kind of wider security strategy. What, what, what's a way that they could do that? And obviously you've referenced as well the IBM immune system a couple of times. You know, where's a good place that people might be able to find out a little bit more about what IBM are doing in this space? Because, you know, I mean, genuinely, I, I think it's a really interesting wider approach. And, and even if you're not considering IBM as your partner in that, I think understanding what IBM is saying about how to build that strategy strategy would be valuable. So, so you know, I'll repeat myself again, uh, not like me, obviously, but uh, so a couple of things that people should be doing uh, and where can people find out a little bit more about what IBM is saying in this space? Okay, well, we've got, um, you know, at the simplest level, you know, our, our website, www.ibm.com, um, can take you to our security pages where you can find out a lot about our products. One of the most exciting things we're doing is using Watson. Have we got a couple of minutes for me to mention that? Yeah, yeah, go on, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly what you were saying about needing an infinite number of security analysts. Uh, did you know, do, do you know about Watson, Paul? Do you know anything about it? I, I do, but if you want to give a little bit of a heads up to, to listeners who've maybe not heard about it. Okay, so Watson is basically IBM's artificial intelligence strategy. It started out some years ago when, you know, everybody, we used to play games with chess grandmasters and things like that. Well, that soon became old hat. We developed a system that went on the US TV show Jeopardy and absolutely wiped the floor with really experienced contestants. And this was a system that very much tested the ability to learn knowledge, gain knowledge and use it and apply it. And if, if you haven't heard of it, it's, it's worth going on YouTube and just looking at it in Jeopardy because for no other reason, it's actually quite fun to watch. We took that technology, which has, you know, it's, it's some years now since we did that, but we took that technology and first we applied it to the world of oncology. Um, we developed a system which can learn in a way that's very, very similar to the way a human being learns. I'm not going to say it's exactly like it because I'm, I'm a bit too much of a geek for that. You know, that's, I happen to be both a psychologist and, and a techie. Um, but it certainly learns in a way very analogous to human learning. So where Computers historically could only uh, absorb structured data. Watson can read articles, Watson can read blog posts and extract data from that. We were so successful with it in oncology that we quickly sort of spun it out to some other areas. And eventually, of course, it came to security. And now we have Watson for security, which does what a talk analyst does. It learns from articles. It learns from real life incidents. We're using it in customers. We've had people report back to us that it, it, it will basically go in and do the sort of analysis on an incident that has occurred that you would expect a human to do, but it will do it much, much faster. It doesn't have to go off shift and hand over to anybody else. It doesn't get tired. It constantly learns. It never stops learning. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still, this is all still a lovely American word, we're still surfacing everything for the uh, human security analyst to make the decisions. But what's happening is that we're able to cut out an awful lot of chasing around. I think we had one, um, one group who tried it who said that it had reduced incident investigation rates by as much as 80%. So one of the things I'd recommend people go and do is look at, first of all, go and look at our 
our security intelligence blog, that's on www.securityintelligence.com, all one word. Um, go and look at www.ibm.com and at least download Trustier, which is a little free client we give that will help secure your web applications. Um, go and uh, look at especially things around Watson. Go and look at our App Exchange. Look at our X-Force pages, because on our X-Force pages we have a sort of uh, real-time update on what's going on in the world, what viruses are going around, what we found, what the latest threat actors are, all the rest of it. In Watson and in our um, integrated solutions, we're trying to bring all this kind of information together. And, and everything is aimed at trying to maximise the use of the very precious resources that are out there, make it easier, make it easier to, to, to find the real things that are happening and dismiss the things that are false positives. Is, is that enough, Paul? Is, is, is that? Yeah, I, mean, I think I get, that gives people places to go, certainly, uh, and, I, and I'll make sure that goes in the show notes. And, and I mean, just, just to you know, just to quickly wrap up, um, if people want to, you know, find out more about you or maybe some of the stuff that you're producing, whether that's social media or not, and or maybe even just tap into your clear knowledge and enthusiasm for the subject, is there a way people can find you online and and, and hassle you a bit? Oh yeah, I'm on Twitter as well, Bachelor. LinkedIn, I think also as Val Bachelor. I keep Facebook for personal stuff, so don't try and contact me there. Um, <laughs> you've got you've you've got to separate your life in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, if people want to see holiday photos, they're they're going to have to do it a different way. Yeah, and and frankly, you know, the, these days they, you can probably just Google me and you'll find some links to stuff I've done. All right. Well, uh, Val, that's brilliant. I, I think that's been a really uh, insightful and great overview of. You know the current landscape and and the the, the challenge that uh, you know a, a wider and, and broader strategy you know could, can help us to take on. So um, I'd love to thank you for your time. I think as I say, been really insightful and really useful. And uh, and and hopefully we can get you back on again to to talk some more. Yep. Thanks very much, Paul. I hope you enjoyed the show. For show notes, visit techstringy.com. We'll also find all of our previous tech interviews episodes. Next time, we're looking at data anonymization, as I'm joined by Harry Keane of Anon AI. So to make sure you catch that, why not subscribe? And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. So until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.